Hey everybody, it's Josh and Chuck, your friends, and we are here to tell you about our upcoming book that's coming out this fall, the first ever Stuff You Should Know book, Chuck. That's right. What's the cool, super cool title we came up with? It's Stuff You Should Know, colon, an incomplete compendium of mostly interesting things. That's right. And it's coming along so great. We're super excited, you mm-hmm. guys. The uh, illustrations are amazing. Yes. And there's the look of the book. It's all just, it's exactly what we hoped it would be. And we cannot wait for you to get your hands on it. Yes, we can't. Um, and you don't have to wait, actually. Well, you do have to wait, but you don't have to wait to order. Uh, you can go pre-order the book right now, everywhere you get books. And you will eventually get a special gift for pre-ordering, which we're working on right now. That's right. So check it out soon, coming this fall. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there. Jerry's here floating around the office somewhere, but she's here, everybody. She's back. Yes, Jerry is here in the flesh. She does exist. She's real. She also is clothed, not just flesh. That's right. And because the three of us are hanging out, even on the internet, it's it's stuff you should know. Yeah, it's good to see her. Her hair's long. <laughs> She's like a hippie now? No, I mean, long for Jerry is not very long, but right. it's swoopier than usual and uh, looks quite nice. That's great, man. Shows she cares. She's staying home. Stay home. Save lives, Jerry. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, you know what else may have saved lives, Chuck? Project Stargate? Project Stargate. <laughs> Do you know when, why I hedged and said that it may have saved lives? Sure. Why? Well, I mean, you tell your version, but I mean, because we don't even know if this stuff's real or not. Yeah, I was going to say that I said it may have saved lives because it totally didn't save any lives as far as we know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bunch of made-up gobbledygook. Um, and a CIA boondoggle and U.S. military boondoggle from the 70s to the 90s. But— Some fun anecdotal stories, though. It is. It is. (laughs) Like, it's one of the more interesting chapters in CIA history. And CIA history is awfully interesting. It has a lot of interesting, horrific chapters. This one's not horrific. I think that's one of the big differences of it, is it's just interesting. There's not a lot of horror to it. Um, I know the men who stare at goats by our pal John Ronson really kind of devolves into horror toward the end of it um, when he gets into MK Ultra. But this is separate from MK, MK Ultra. It came from the same mindset for sure. This idea that there were powers to the mind that could conceivably be unlocked to do ill or good or neutral stuff. Who knows? But this one, it it was fairly benign as far as CIA projects go, don't you think? Yeah, and believe it or not, I never saw that movie. Uh, it was okay. It That's was why I bad. didn't, I think. I mean, it had everything I love in a movie, which is Jeff Bridges and George Clooney and John Malkovich. Right, yeah. But, There's uh, some funny spots in it, too, for sure. Yeah, I don't know why that one got past me. I think I read tepid reviews, and I just kind of was like, meh. Pass. If you watched it, you would not think that you would just, you would not want the two hours of your life back, but you wouldn't just be like, <laughs> I'm going to dedicate my life to making sure everybody sees this movie. It wouldn't be like that. Okay. And and I haven't <laughs> read the book. Sorry, John, if you even listen to us anymore. But um, it, it like, I'm quite sure from what I understand, the book is, is vastly superior to the movie, hey, which yeah. when does that ever happen? Sure. If John Ronson's uh, hands were involved. Mm-hmm. In his brain, then I'm sure it was better. Yeah. Love that guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. Doesn't like to wear shoes for people who might not have seen him. Here's another fun fact that you probably don't know. He was on one of the first editions of Movie Crush, and uh, he sits, he swears that he sits on the very front row, far left seat. <laughs> That's torture. It's torture. I don't, it's, it was so weird. No, I know. I heard that episode. His his movie was Annie. <laughs> right? No, not true. <laughs> what was it? Do you remember? It was Let the Right One In. Oh, man, that's a great movie. Yeah, sure is. And, you if, you know, if you ever go to a movie theater in New York and you see some guy front <laughs> with <no> left shoes. <laughs> with no shoes, then go tap him on the shoulder and ask for his autograph. Yep. Um, okay, so we're talking Project Stargate, which was the 
general code name for this secret project that was declassified around 2000, I think, which is, it's very telling that it was declassified in 2000 because the project was finally canceled in 1995. Normally, when the CIA conducts a project, especially if that project yields valuable stuff, yeah. they don't declassify it in just five years. It takes decades before that stuff starts to trickle out. But with Project Stargate, um, they said, here you go, here's yeah. everything we throw, have. Throw everyone a bone. This is fun <laughs> <Yeah>. stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's great reading. Um, but this this project ran from officially, uh, I believe, 1975 to 1995. And it had a different, a couple of different names. And it got passed along from different, um, different agencies. Yeah. But the whole thing started uh, even back before the CIA got involved. And from what I saw, there was a woman a Soviet woman named Nunel Kulagnia who was on TV in the Soviet Union and she was demonstrating her telekinesis. And apparently some defense intelligence analyst saw this TV show and said, hey, I think this, the, the Soviets might have some sort of mind weapon that we might want to look at. And it scared the bejesus out of the United States. And they got busy trying their own hand, starting with the USS Nautilus, the first submarine to make it to the North Pole. Yeah, I think what's so funny about the early history of this is that um, the Russians started doing it because they thought we were doing it, and we (laughs) started doing it because we thought they were doing it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I don't know if either one of us technically were officially doing it. No, no. So, yeah, the the woman on TV did not necessarily mean the Soviets had some sort of program. But it was that whole, like, goofy Cold War thing where it's like, if if there's even the slightest possibility that the yeah. Russians are up to something, we've got to do that too and then do it better. And they had the exact same mentality. So there was a constant arms race for everything, including ESP and, and what we'll, we'll find out was called remote viewing. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the deal. I guess we should tell everyone what this means. Um, it's sort of like a, uh, an, a an edition of Karnak the Magnificent from uh, the Johnny Carson show. At least this is how they trained, and we'll get into that specifically. But mm-hmm. it was, hey, you have a gift, maybe. <laughs> We're going to test you to see. But uh, sit in this room and tell us if you can locate whatever, uh, a missile base in the Soviet Union or a hostage in the Middle East or mm-hmm. just whatever they needed to know that they didn't know. They're like, just sit here quietly and and think it into reality. And uh, that was sort of the basis of the program was was a trying to use PSI, P-S-I, which we've talked right. about before, yeah. to our uh, political and, I guess, military advantage. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in that respect, it was really, again, very benign. They weren't trying to explode somebody's head, although there were reports of of programs like that. But with Project Stargate specifically, it was just people trying to come up with descriptions of secret places or, like you said, the location of certain people, just kind of astrally projecting is another way to put it. Clairvoyance is another way to put it. But just kind of, not just reading somebody else's mind, but actually traveling somewhere else in the world and connecting into a person or a thing or a place and getting that information remotely through means other than the normal senses. And that's why another reason, um, or that's why a reason, uh, another name for remote viewing, which is what it came to be called, is anomalous cognition, which is, You've got this information, you're getting this this info that you'd normally get from like your ears or your eyes mm-hmm. or your tongue or something like that, but you're getting it just into your mind. <laughs> your tongue? Uh, sure. Hey, go look that thing. Tell me what right. you think. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> see if you can figure out the secret code word to get into that base by licking the keypad. But the, I mean, you know, you're not, you're getting it from um, not just your sensory perception, it's an extra sensory perception, Mm. right? Is that what that means? That's what that means, (laughs) right? So that's the whole jam with this is that the CIA and then the Soviets had their own thing going on too. We're saying like, let's do this. Let's use this potential capability to... um, to see if it works, and if it does work, let's use it to gather intelligence without having to go anywhere, without having to spend virtually any money on this. Just like you said, put them in a room, maybe with some saltines and some grape Kool-Aid. Sure. Let them relax and, and figure it out. Yeah, so in 72 is when the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, 
first got wind of the Soviets potentially uh, doing this for real. And the CIA said, all right, you know what? We're going to start funding uh, these private research firms to see if this is possible. In 73, uh, this started happening at the uh, SRI International in California, which stood originally for Stanford Research Institute, but they weren't a part of Stanford at the time. And there was a guy there named Dr. Russell Targ, who was one of the researchers, and he wrote a book called Mind Race, uh, which is a great title for something like this. Sure. And he had some, like, early examples of sessions that he thought sounded promising, at least. Right. I was going to say, I'm not sure how he got into it, though, but he, I don't know if he was already into it, and then the DIA got into it or started funding him or something like that. But from, yeah, from what I can tell you, he's the earliest one. I bet he was into it, but not for, a you know, uh, espionage-type purposes or anything like that. No, no, I think it was just kind of like this early, you know, beginning of totally. new, the New Age movement. This yeah. guy was like on the, the leading edge of that whole thing. So in 1976, there was this experiment that he championed as like, hey, look, this could work, everyone. Uh, there was a remote viewer, someone in the offices in California there, SRI, and Dr. Mm-hmm. Targ was in New York City. And no one knew anything about where he was, supposedly. I think we're going to say supposedly a lot in this podcast. Oh, yeah. And they said, all right, where am I? And he said, well, um, let me see. In my brain, I'm seeing something. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm seeing a cement depression. Yes. It's almost like a dry fountain. Yes. There's a cement post in the middle, and there are pigeons flying around. Oh, my God. <laughs> Dr. Targ said, oh, I'm in Washington Square Park and the fountain is empty. Yeah. And, and Chuck, there's pigeons pooping everywhere. Because <laughs> it's New York. Yes. And so, like, with this, this apparently successful remote viewing session, Dr. Targ um, was able to get funding from the DIA at first. And that's where it really kind of kicked off Pretty amazing. this whole study. That one, I think, came through in 76, but it certainly kept his funding going. But he had um, he had anecdotal data from remote viewing sessions previous to this that really kind of kicked things off. And so the CIA is like, well, I mean, if this guy can sit there and and figure out that this guy is in Washington Square Park just with his mind's eye, you know. Without licking anything. Right. No licking at all. (laughs) Certainly no pigeons are being licked here. Um, That, like, like we could probably put that to good use, having him think about Soviet stuff, and we can steal their secrets that way. That's right. And in 1976, we had a president-elect in Jimmy Carter who, you know, asked a couple of questions around the the office, and he got in touch with Yuri Geller, mm-hmm. uh, the famous Yuri Geller. He's a, a great mentalist. If you haven't, we've talked about him plenty of times. I feel like, yeah, but I really want to do just an episode just a show on him. him. He's pretty yeah. great. Did you know that he ended up getting very rich by dowsing for oil companies? Oh, really? Can you believe that? I can. I can't too. Because I think oil companies will pay anybody anything if they think it will lead to oil. (laughs) You know where the oil is? You got some oil, man? Give me some oil. So Carter said um, he had a private meeting with him, and he kind of asked about what was going on. And Geller said, you know, these Russians, they school uh, or they screen school kids and see if anyone has particular talents like paranormal power talents. Mm -hmm. And they send them to special places to be trained. And Carter said, well, maybe we should look into this. It's 1977 now. Mm -hmm. And they didn't find any evidence of that kind of thing. But by this point, the chicken was out of the coop, I think, and they were going to spend a little bit of money to kind of pursue this. Yes. I think the only evidence that that little line that Yuri Geller gave to Jimmy Carter was that Yuri Geller had seen Escape to Witch Mountain the year before. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the problem with all this is like, BS begets more BS. Mm-hmm. So Yuri Geller had a meeting with Carter, started talking out of his A, and next thing you know, the United States is funding a study to find out whether it's true. It's just like, come on. Yeah. 
I, I like I have to I'm gonna just fess up here. I was very bugged the entire time I was researching this particular one. Oh, it was yeah? like crop circles all over again. Yeah, but more fun than crop circles, I think. It it was more fun, but you know what kind of sucked the fun out of it for me? I'll just go ahead and say it now. I was gonna save it for the end. <laughs> But I read something somewhere that really kind of drove it home that the problem with, like, this kind of stuff is that if you if you let it really kind of get a foothold or get started, mm-hmm. it, it paves the way for the kind of thinking that just doubts science. Yeah. And that, that doubts expertise. And that is like, no, no, don't you know? Like, people can bend spoons. You don't need to, like, um, right. you know, you don't like, you don't have to believe in science. This stuff happens. This is real. This What's is the magical. Harm? Right, exactly. And then all of a sudden, you have people believing anything that they hear. Yeah, that's true. That's the problem with it. And it really bugged me, especially on today of all days, you know? Yeah, of course. Okay. So, um Around 1978, and we don't know all this stuff for sure because a lot of the stuff is still – well, I don't know if it's still top secret, but um, the timelines aren't like – you know, we don't know specific dates. But around 78, the CIA stopped funding this, Mm -hmm. and the Army said, hey, we'll take over. No problem. We've got a bunch of money we don't know what to do with. Yeah, and how about a cool Army code name? Uh, We'll call it Project Grill Flame. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, one word. Don't know why. That's weird. Well, I think that's the point of a project name. It's meant to kind of baffle you. Oh, I think some of them are kind of cool and relatable to the thing, no? But to me, it's like, well, you don't want any outsider to Plowshare? figure out what the project is about, you know? Yeah, that's true. Plowshare? Plow, okay, you're right. That was a really good one. You're right. So Project Grill Flame from the Army was based in Maryland at Fort Meade. Mm-hmm. And they had remote viewers uh, or people who claimed to be remote viewers or show talent as remote viewers mm-hmm. in barracks, and they would do the Karnak routine. They would hand them an envelope and said, what's inside? And that was kind of the extent of their testing at first. Yeah. Um, they they would um, – well, they were allowed to open the envelope. I'm sure they would just once in a while as a joke put it to their forehead. Right. Um, but <laughs> – but um, they would give them, uh, they would give them a car, like an envelope with maybe a somebody's picture, maybe a note card that has latitude and longitude typed on it, maybe somebody's name. Mm-hmm. That was it, and they were told to think about that latitude and longitude, or told to, to concentrate on that person's picture, or think about their name, and they wanted all the information that came. And so, when it was latitude and longitude, typically you would know like you were supposed to be um, viewing remotely. A like a site or some sort of secret base or some sort of weapon or satellite dish or radar dish or something like that. Um, and if it was a person, you know, who knows? Maybe they were a lost person. And some of these people, some of these remote viewing um, subjects would would say, like, I need a little more info or something like that, and then it would kind of get them going. And then they would write down what their impressions were. They would maybe dictate it. They would draw it. Maybe they would do all three. And then after 20 minutes, 30 minutes, however long they they dedicated to it, they would stop and all of their info would be taken away and then analyzed, analyzed by a defense intelligence analyst, Mm -hmm. CIA analyst, an NSA analyst, who knows? Somebody whose job was going through intelligence that was given to them by spies and satellites and all that, would every once in a while get a, a package slipped to them between 1975 and 1995 that ha- somebody had literally pulled out of thin air and put down in words, and here you go, see if this this holds up or helps you in any way mm-hmm. in figuring out what's in that mountain in the Urals. Yeah, so there was a guy named uh, Joseph McMonagall, and nice. he was, uh, he worked as a he was a recruit for for Grill Flame, and he worked into the '90s. And he has some pretty good stories. Mm-hmm. And the, the, there's a lot of good stories in here. And is this stuff true? Is the thing? No. Like it was frustrating. You think this stuff is all made up? I the, here's the thing. For every one of his stories, I went and tried to cross reference it with with declassified CIA documents. I couldn't find anything. Like all of the guys' stories are anecdotal. Right. Here's the problem. They get reported 
not necessarily as fact, but they get reported in like, you know, an actual profile of the guy in the Washington Post or right. Newsweek or something like that. Or on like this podcast. That. And then all of a sudden, right, and then all of a sudden when somebody cross-references some weird thing they, they read in some fringy book, mm-hmm. it pops up in a Washington Post article too. Right. That's true. It. Yeah. That's true. It's just bad reporting that is that is continuing this to go on. But as far as I know, I could not find any corroboration from any declassified documents for any of his stories. So one of his examples in 1979, he said that he was he could see where Skylab, the very famous satellite in the 1970s and 80s, was going to crash mm-hmm. 11 months before. So this is also precognition, right? Uh, which is another part of Psy. Mm-hmm. And in 1981, uh, and supposedly that was correct, and in 1981, he also got another tip, a mental hot tip, that there was a hostage, uh, Brigadier General James Dozier, that mm-hmm. was being held in, uh, I don't know if it's Padua or Padua, Italy. I think it's Padua. Padua? Neither one? <laughs> I think it is Padua. And supposedly the tip arrived in Italy, and the day that he was released in that very town. Yeah. Uh, what else? What about the, the KGB agent? This one's pretty great. So there was a KGB agent in South Africa that the CIA had been watching in the in I guess 1980, and uh, they couldn't figure out how he was contacting his KGB handlers. Yeah. Back in in Mother Russia, and um, I guess McGonagall or McMonagall um, was focused on a calculator. He saw that this guy really was obsessed with his calculator, mm-hmm. and it turns out when the CIA looked at his calculator, they figured out it was a shortwave radio. Yeah, and also Busted. just check the guy's calculator. Sure. <laughs> like check you all know, the electronics that he has. He has a cigarette lighter and a calculator. We looked at the cigarette lighter, found nothing. <laughs> we just gave up after that. Yeah, we looked at the calculator and held it upside down. It just said boobless. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those, remember the professor ones uh, with the, no. with the, the uh, mortar cap and all that? No. What are you talking oh, about? Oh, you don't. There was one that had a drawing of like an old wise man with a, a graduation cap on. It was a pretty famous like 70s calculator for kids. Oh, oh, you mean the calculator itself? Yeah. No, I think I know what you're talking about. I thought you meant some weird trick where you type in numbers and turn it upside down. And it says. Oh, something. and it looks like a guy. Oh, I see. I was like, that's pretty impressive. We, we got right. You're like, I can just type boobs. So in 85, the DIA uh, took control of this program, I guess took it back from the mm-hmm. Army. Mm-hmm. It seems like nobody wanted it. Like every few years, they would just be like, who wants to take this over now? But the thing is, it kept getting funding. And I, yeah. from what I read, either Targ or Edwin May, who comes in later um, as the director of this program, like they said it was year to year funding but it kept getting funding every year for 20 years for 20 and i would years. think i would think too that like it, once it went from one agency to another maybe it would survive once but it survived all these transitions yeah so they take it back in 85 and started funding uh SRI again international mm-hmm. they're back on the scene and then another contractor private contractor came on called science applications International Corporation, uh, also in California. And this is where they name it Stargate in 1991. Right. And it had to be after the movie, right? I don't think so, man. I think the movie came out a few years after that. Really? I'm going to look. That's easy enough to check. (laughs) Let's find out. Because the whole time I was wondering about that. And that was the name from 1991 till its end in 1995. Mm -hmm. And... uh, Oh, I'm sorry, not end in 1995. 1995 is when the CIA took it back over. Right. Um, and then the CIA finally said, you know what, we're just, we're not sure about this anymore. Um, we're just going to, we're just going to defund this thing and, and let it go away. Um, again, this was 1995. And five years later, they declassified as far as we know, everything that had anything to do with it. I think some of the people like McMonagall who were involved are saying, no, there's still plenty of classified stuff you guys don't know about that really proves everything. Right, they're just not showing you the good stuff. Yeah, but I read this, um, I read, a, a, I guess, a transcript of a Skeptoid, uh, our buddy Brian Dunning's um, podcast. Yeah. Who we went, um, we had a flame war with over whether or not it could rain frogs. Um, Did we? Yeah, we did. He well, he tried to start one. I just ignored him. But um, when was this? 
This is when we had the Can It Rain Frogs episode. I know, but that was years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, okay. I have a long, long memory. I can hold a grudge. <laughs> but anyway, on Skeptoid, he was basically saying, like, the very fact that, like, all these people are allowed, who were verifiably in this program run by the CIA for 20 years, the fact that they're allowed to walk around and talk about this and haven't been, like, haven't disappeared it just lends further credence to the idea that there was nothing that came of this. Right, the because they would all just be vanished? Kind of. I think the CIA is not above that kind of thing. Well, at any rate, the CIA said uh, it's not worth this money that we're spending. Uh, so let's just get a, a, a very, you know, the typical thing. Let's get a third-party report, mm-hmm. and that'll solve it all. And in 1995, the American Institutes for Research uh, published an evaluation of remote viewing, colon, research and applications and said, you know what? This is pretty compelling stuff, but we can't use it for intelligence because you note the word intelligence. (laughs) Zing. (laughs) And they shut it down. Shut it down in 1995. They did 20 years, $20 million, uh, looking for everything from new Soviet submarine designs to lost Scud missiles to people being held by foreign kidnappers. Um, all of it, just down the down the toilet. That's right. And in the old days, this would be the end of the episode. <laughs> but in today's Stuff You Should Know, it's our first message break. That might be a record, Chuck, a 30-minute first act. 25. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I was looking. <laughs> we started a little late after we started recording. 25, that's, that, I don't think that's the record. All right, so should we keep talking about Project Stargate just because it's fun? Yeah, let's. So, um, yeah, and I don't mean, like, I'm not trying to poo-poo, like, a people's imagination. I've got the same thing. I love the same stuff. It's mm-hmm. just... Mine eyes have been opened and they can never be closed again. (laughs) Did you just say mine eyes? Yes, and again. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So with uh, with Stargate, right, um, the the whole basis of this was that it it was allowed to continue on for 20 years because the people involved were very much impressed with what they saw. Yes. And— um, what they saw kind of went a little bit like this. Like the earliest tests, I think the ones that Russell Targ was doing, were basically like, um, uh, tell me about some Soviet submarine floating around somewhere in the world. Let's see what you can do. Just really free, loosey-goosey, hippie stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then a guy named um, Dr. Edwin May came along and he took over in, I think, 1985, but he'd been working on the project starting at the Stanford Research Institute um, beginning in, back in 1975. And um, so he was on this project, I believe, for the full 20 years in one capacity or another. And when he took over— They weren't um, even paying him for the last 10. <laughs> no, he was just hanging around, uh-huh. living off of saltines and grape Kool-Aid. That's right, with his red stapler. But he, yeah, kind of. But he um, he instituted way stricter protocols for conducting these remote viewing experiments and tests, too. Not just, you know, remote viewing experiments were conducted. He wanted to kind of show that these things could work, too. So he came up with something called ranked order judging, which is part of a larger type of test called forced choice. Yeah, and I'm going to get you to explain that in a second because I didn't fully get— uh, the the redo, mm-hmm. but May is a pretty interesting guy. He was a doctor. He was a PhD in nuclear physics. Um, and while it's easy to sort of cast someone like this as just sort of a loopy hippie type, uh, he's really intelligent guy. Um, but he was also a loopy hippie type. He got his postdoc <laughs> in San Francisco in the 1960s. So you know what that means. Uh, and he literally used the words. Uh, he became a professional hippie. Did a lot of drugs, did a lot of psychedelics, mm-hmm. and got into parapsychology and did what you do if that is your uh, path. You go to India at some point, just hoping to sort of soak up some cool esoteric knowledge. You bump into Rupert Sheldrake. 
Yeah, perhaps. And he came back and didn't really get a lot out of India. I'm sure he had a great time and everything. Sure. But uh, didn't come back. The food there. Yeah. (laughs) Didn't come back with anything he could use. Came back in 75, and then that's where he got a job as a research assistant at SRI International, Mm -hmm. working with telekinesis. And he was like, this is it for me, baby. This is is the job? You pay me for this? (laughs) And he just kind of took off from there and and I guess took over as director in 1985, right? Yeah. So he was the one that started this uh, different sort of testing method called first, uh, not first choice, but forced choice. Right. It just wasn't quite, it, it wasn't anywhere near as like free and easy as the free response ones. It was basically, it kind of went like this. Okay. So one let's say, <laughs> let's say that um, you're holding one of these tests. Ideally, you have three people involved. You have the remote viewer. Yeah. You have the uh, sender who's actually thinking of the thing that the remote viewer is supposed to be tapping into and, and ga- gaining information from. And then you have a judge. Okay? Ideally, I, you said. That, that's ideally. very important. Yeah. And also, ideally, the sender and the remote viewer should not be in contact with one another before or during the experiment. It's another kind of important one, too. Yes. And these are things that, like, Edwin May was instituting that really kind of scientificified um, the whole thing. It definitely gave it a more legitimate glean, for sure. Yeah. But um, so what happens is the, the sender chooses a photo— from 100 photos in a National Geographic photo set. That's usually what they use. And I also, ideally, we could point out that um, they would use way more than 100 photos and not those same photos over and over. That's a big one, too, as we'll see for sure. Yeah. That's a big problem if you use the same photo set and the same remote viewers, right? Yes. So the, the person who is the sender would sit there and, and they would pick a photo, and then they would think about that photo. Mm-hmm. And the remote viewer would be uh, ideally somewhere else thinking about that what the, the sender was thinking of. And then they would write down their impressions. They would draw their impressions. And then they would compile this little document, basically, of what they saw during the remote viewing session. Okay, that's this, the first step. Yes. The second step is that you take four other, maybe five other, pictures from that same National Geographic photo set. And you could even physically put them as printed photos into an envelope. And then you give that to the judge who has nothing to do with any of this to this point. They've just now been given an envelope of photos. And then they've also been given the remote viewer's um, document that they whipped up from their remote viewing session. Mm-hmm. And so the judge is supposed to take the remote viewer's impressions and and basically match them to one of the photos. And so they rank the photos. If you have six photos, there's one photo that's your number one photo that you're saying, like, this is what the remote viewer was seeing. This one is the second likeliest, the third likeliest, fourth, fifth, and sixth likeliest. So you rank the photos. If the remote viewer got it right, then the photo the judge chose as, chose as the number one photo should be the photo that the sender was thinking of when the remote viewer got their impressions. Yeah. Okay? Sure. It's actually, in a weird way, very scientific because you can insert statistical analysis into this whole thing, and they did. And they found that over time, some remote viewers did do much better than chance, just random chance, where out of every 100 tries, any photo should be chosen uh, out of a set of five, um, you know, twice. Yeah, it was. I think the direct quote was from the report was far beyond what is expected by chance. Yes, that supposedly came from a true believer statistician who sure. had done an a- analysis of this. But yes, there were there were this I- there was this idea that some of these people were capable of of drawing impressions of what somebody else in a different room was thinking based on a photo they were looking at. And then there are now we can talk about all the explanations of how that probably wasn't any sort of clairvoyance. Yeah, and what bugs me just before we even get to that is in the report it said it was far beyond what is expected by chance. Mm-hmm. Like, tell me what percentage chance is and what percentage they got, not right. your opinion on what is far beyond and what isn't. Right, right. So, so that bugs me right off the bat. That's a big one right there. There's also subjectivity running through this big time because the judge yeah. is doing a subjective analysis too, right? Yeah, and, you know, if they're picking, another, like I mentioned, another one of the problems is they use the same set of 100 
Nat Geo images. So I imagine after a couple of times, they know it's going to be something about nature to, at the right. very least. Yeah. And if they say, let's say, lion attacking uh, elk, they're like, no, but it's a tiger attacking an antelope. You win. <laughs> right, exactly. You know? <laughs> Yep, and then if that is the the only photo with uh, anything like a lion and an elk or whatever, a tiger, um, in the photo set, the rest is like an oil derrick and a lake and some other stuff, then of course that's the one that's going to win, uh, with, with that the judge is going to choose, and they're going to have a hit. So there's a lot of like real problems with this. Even though they tried to add like science to the whole thing, mm-hmm. they, they, you, you just can't do it. Just add and science. Then, Right, exactly, and then um, so so there that was just the experiments that they conducted to kind of show and demonstrate that this worked. A lot of the stuff that they used for intelligence that was much more along the lines of the um, the uh, free association one. It's not called free association. What is it called? Oh, the uh, free response experiments, where they're just like tell us about you know. The Soviets, any new submarine de- designs the Soviets right. are working on, or something. So, can we can we tell some of these uh, uh, stories that were supposedly successes? Yes. All right. the The West Virginia site is the first one. Uh, Doctor Targ relayed this story, and these were from the early days in the early seventies, in which a remote viewer in California was given the longitude and latitude coordinates of somewhere in West Virginia, and said, "What do you see?" And the remote viewer said, um, described like what was going on with the terrain above the ground and about a secret underground government site and supposedly provided names of personnel who work there, uh, code words used for the top secret projects. Um, and it, apparently the description was really, really accurate, so accurate that the CIA said, um, well, I don't know if it was the CIA. I assume it was. But mm-hmm. they said that we've got a leak and we need to find out what's going on and investigate this. Right. That's the kind of thing. I think, like you said, that was an early 70s Dr. Targ one. Yeah. The, something like that that prompts a, uh, an investigation into a leak, That's that will get you more funding for a while. That, like, definitely will cement your, your Scare reputation. them into giving funding? Yeah, for sure. Especially, yeah, if people are jumpy about what uh, the Soviets might be onto this kind of thing, too, and we got to get on it. Sure. And apparently that same remote viewer saw or remotely saw um, an underground site that was similar in Russia in the Ural Mountains. Mm-hmm. Describe that that was supposedly verified as, quote, substantially correct by the CIA. Yeah. So that was one of the big ones that people kind of tout as evidence that Project Stargate worked, right? Sure. There's also one called the Microwave Generator Report. This is a good one. Um, this one was with uh, Dr. May, Dr. Edwin May. And um, the the remote viewer was, as is typical, just given longitude and latitude, maybe given like a little more evidence. I think they were told that it was a technical site in the U.S. And the remote viewer started describing a microwave generator on site. And the most astounding thing about it is that the, the, the remote viewer said that this microwave had a beam of divergence angle of 30 degrees, which is not something that you should be able to glean from somebody telling you the latitude and longitude coordinates of a technical site. Sure. So that is pretty impressive. And then later on, Dr. May took the whole description um, which, as we'll see, is is rare in these cases. Yeah, and and determined that it was that the specs of the generator itself were eighty percent accurate, and that the site as a whole were seventy percent accurate. Seventy no percent reliable, idea. though. Okay, seventy percent reliable. Slightly no idea different. how you would conclude that or quantify that yeah, kind of thing. But exactly. again, this is the kind of thing like you're starting to build like a lore around this department, this agency, that people who are already kind of into the existence of this kind of thing can come and, and participate in and talk about with their friends and, and wow people at cocktail parties <laughs> with. Uh, the Russian crane, this one came from Dr. Targ. Uh, remote viewer was given, again, coordinates of a site near uh, a city in the former Soviet Union. And there was a, um, in, the, in like, what do you see? What the drawing detailed was a large 
industrial crane called a gantry crane, uh, crane mm-hmm. and they said, you know what? There's no way that this person could have known how to draw this gantry crane unless they saw it through remote viewing or someone told them this. No That's other right. explanation. Yeah, Um and that was what the analyst who was handed this was like, wow, that's really impressive. So the Russian crane stands on its own, too. <laughs> and then there is also one called the Lowell Fugitive. There's a, a woman named Angela Ford who was a longtime participant in Project Stargate. Um, and she used a kind of mediumship where she had three different spirit guides who would— <laughs> caused her to carry out automatic writing. Oh, That's man. how she did her remote That's viewing, great. right? And she, and this is, you know, she would go down to, to Fort Meade at the barracks and do this, right, under Army supervision, <laughs> which is so bizarre. But that's what would happen, right? So Angela Ford was given the name of a guy named Charles Jordan, who was an interesting cat in and of himself. He was, a, he called himself the ruler of the Florida Keys. He was <laughs> I a thought that was Jimmy Buffett. He was a crook. He's the prince of the Florida oh, Keys. Okay. Um, he was the uh, he was a, a crooked customs agent who had turned into a drug smuggler down there, and also was very easily bribed so that other drug smugglers could smuggle their drugs. And so it was Jimmy Buffett. He got caught and went on the run, and so they were looking for him. So they asked Angela Ford if uh, she could find him for him. That's right, and she said, "I'm seeing, or my friends or my ghost friends are telling me." Mm-hmm. And I'm automatically writing this city, Lowell, Wyoming. And it turned out that he was apprehended 100 miles west of Lavelle, Wyoming, with a V. Yeah. But 100 miles west of a place that she still didn't name. Some people say, though, that Charles Jordan admitted to being in the town. Okay. On the day Angela Ford did her remote viewing session. Boom. Proven. Right? So you've got all this stuff, all of these anecdotes that are just coming together into like, get this, check this out, get a load of this. All these things that you can point to and write books on and say that like this is for real and that the Washington Post can report on. And that's what's kept this legend, this stuff about Project Stargate being for real going all these years. And if you dig into it, it's really, really hard to pull apart because the people who were there will tell you in an interview like, oh, this person said this. But then if you interview somebody else to say, well, no, they didn't say that. They, she didn't say, she didn't say uh, Lowell. She said Northern Wyoming. Somebody else would say, no, she just said, you know, somewhere in the West or something like that. So as the story of Charles Jordan being captured in Yellowstone um, comes out later, the story of Angela Ford remotely viewing him mm-hmm. in Wyoming gets piled on and added to over the years until you have her just missing the letter of the word or the word by one letter and then seeing him in that town on the day that it happened. And that's how, like, the stuff goes. It's just anecdotal stuff that really did happen. Like, she really did have this remote viewing session, but the accuracy of it is what's always been in doubt. The problem is, Chuck, is there are examples of people doing some really spectacularly, amazingly accurate hits over the years that really kind of lend credence to it in in some way. So much so that that American Research Institute or American Institute of Research paper still said, look, there are some weird, unexplainable stuff in here. Does it prove that remote viewing is real and that it exists? No. There's a lot of things that could explain these spectacular, accurate hits. But overall, no, it's not going to, it, it doesn't show that this is, this is real because these are the, the hits. There was so much garbage produced that by the time 1995 rolled around, the CIA was like, this is, even if remote viewing does exist, it's so useless as an intelligence tool that we're not going to fund it anymore. Should we take another break? Yeah. All right. Let's take a break, and we'll be right back after this.
right. So here's the deal, and this is sort of the big question, which you kind of answered before the break. <laughs> Sorry. Is it? No, that's all right. It's, uh, I couldn't help myself. It was a nice it. tease. Is it a, a useful spy tool? Mm-hmm. Because we can have fun all day funding something and doing these fun experiments and getting them sort of right or not. But the whole purpose of all of this was, can we actually use this stuff as actionable evidence or intelligence? Right. And you can't really. Um, like we said, they are anecdotal. Um, they might be impressed by a certain part of a thing. And you mentioned that it's rare that they ever included like the full drawing or the full discourse on whatever they supposedly saw or didn't see. They mm-hmm. would sort of pick out something that was right and say, look, they got this one part right. That's amazing. But that's sort of where it ended. Um, the with the, with the gantry crane, you know, they got that gantry crane right, but there was there was so much stuff that was wrong that they said, we, we can't use this. Right. And that's sort of the point of all this is we can't use this stuff as intelligence because it's just partial. Uh, people that defended it would say, and Jordan McMonagall is one of them, said, this isn't supposed to be the end-all, be-all. This is supposed to work alongside real intelligence and just see if it could help support some of this stuff or give them a hint in the right direction to start using real intelligence. And it was never supposed to be a standalone that you go and, like, raid a Russian village because some remote viewer said there was a nuclear weapon there or something. Yeah, yeah, and I think the CIA always viewed it as that, too, and that, like, it was benign, it was very cheap and inexpensive, it can be done easily. Um, But the problem is, is, like, if you have somebody who's producing tons and tons of garbage intelligence, the analyst still has to sift through that. And in some of that garbage intelligence, there may be something that leads them down the wrong path, and while they're doing that, they miss some other sure. intelligence that that actually is useful and good. And so it, it's kind of like a metaphor for what pseudoscience in general does to society. It like throws garbage on there that kind of distracts you from the stuff that you could be doing that would actually be beneficial. That's what it did to intelligence analysts too. And that's why they ultimately abandoned the whole program. Right. But for 20 years, they thought, You know, there were three big reasons why it was attractive, and they all kind of boil down to why not, which it's it's a passive operation, so it doesn't require a lot of resources. It's, you know, I don't know how many people they had remote viewing at their max, but I doubt if it was that many. Um, It didn't cost a lot. Six million bucks a year isn't that much money in a defense budget. And then it's what's known as no known defense. So even if it's working, let's say, then the enemy can't really stop this. I guess, except for rooting these people out and tracking them down and killing them. Sure. But aside from that, those are the three reasons for 20 years they threw six million bucks a year at it. And I'm sure that kind of wavered in and out. But, you know, they spent over $100 million. Uh, No, I think they spent $20 million over 20 years. Oh, is that all? Yeah, man, that was it for the whole the whole time. Oh, I, mean, I thought they spent even, six million a year. No, I think it might have been up to like six million dollars at the end of it, but uh, over okay. over the course of it, and I don't think this is really necessarily adjusted for inflation. But starting in '75 and ending in '95, twenty million dollars, you know, on paper is what got spent. Gotcha. So those first years, it was like here's a hundred thousand dollars in a bucket of weed. Kind of, I think so, and some grape Kool-Aid and saltines. <laughs> All right, well, $20 million bucks, But, um, yeah, that's not a lot of money for, you know, if you're talking overall defense budgets. No, it's not. And so it's it's so cheap that were it, were it even vaguely promising or vaguely helpful, the CIA would have been fools not to keep funding this, or the, de- the, the Defense Department would have been fools not to keep funding it. Somebody. Yeah. You and I could have kept funding it if we really put our minds to it. <laughs> but it, it not only wasn't useful, it, it did not, it, it was actually harmful as far as an intelligence tool is concerned. That was, I think, what I gather from them finally canceling it. Yeah, and this, you know, this last bit about the representative from North Carolina, Charlie Rose, not the... Uh, not the the TV guy who's turned out to be quite a jerk. But um, <laughs> he kind of summed it up, and this is what I think the deal is, is if, and this is what started it to begin with, if you think the Soviets are doing this, you can't just sit back, or at least that's the rationale, you can't just sit back and say, well, it's, it's probably so silly and not even real, but 
um, we're certainly not going to let them be the only ones trying this. Yeah. Yeah. Like if the Ruskies have it, we sure as heck better be on it ourselves. Exactly. Kind of thing. And luckily, um, well, I was going to say luckily that mentality faded with the Cold War, but it's back, everybody. <laughs> hey, the 80s are back. Yeah, they are big time. People wearing fanny packs, and <laughs> apparently there's, um, what's that one thing where, like, you'd touch the shirt and, like, your handprint would be a color? Oh, sure. Like the the heat uh, mm-hmm. heat shirts or whatever. I can't remember what they were called, but anyway, Those they're are back. apparently back, yeah. Very cool. The 80s are back. So that's it. That's Project Stargate. There's a lot to read about it if you are fascinated by it. Whether you're fascinated by it, it's just a completely crackpot thing, or you're like, nope. I don't believe you, Josh and Chuck. I think you're covering up for the government and the Illuminati. Whatever. Go read more about it. And in particular, I want to to direct you to Mars Exploration, May 22nd, 1984. It's a declassified transcript from a remote viewing session of Mars where they asked the, I think, Joseph McMonagall to wander around Mars um, at, at, at in the year 1 million BCE. And it's fascinating stuff. But it also tells you everything you need to know about Project Stargate. Uh, if you want to know more... Oh, I already said that kind of thing, didn't I, Chuck? I guess it's time now for Listener Mail. I'm going to call this a heroin podcast. And this is from Anonymous. Yo, thanks for your heroin podcast. You spoke uh, fairly about something that is usually wrought with bias. I grew up in the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia. It's one of the largest drug markets in the world, most of which is heroin. We are ground zero now for the opioid epidemic. Uh, Growing up around so much heroin messes with you. My childhood best friends uh, turned to sex work to pay for it while we played video games upstairs. People were ODing in middle school. The class clown's dad was one of the biggest runners in the city, so when he was arrested, the kid was never the same. It's very difficult to explain what being around groups of people on heroin is like. Uh, The link below is an excellent New York Times article about the Kensington Avenue area. Luckily for me, I suppose, I got out relatively unscathed. A lot of people see uh, people who are addicted as animals and criminals. I struggle with where I stand. I know as a group it's a public health issue, but it is also hard when looking at the individual's actions. Uh, Kensington was a middle-class haven from the early to mid-19th century until the crack epidemic of the 80s. According to my parents, a Sunday event was walking to the shops on Kensington Avenue. Uh, did not happen after that. And that, uh, here's the article. It is called Trapped by the Walmart of Heroin by Jennifer Percy from New York Times, October 2018. And that is from Anonymous. Man alive, Anonymous. I'm, I'm glad you made it out alive. Totally. Because that is very scary stuff. What a, man, it's crazy. It makes you realize what, what what a lottery birth is, you know? Not just in, like, your socioeconomic class or your race or what country you're born into, but, like, where, what neighborhood you're born into, too, know. you know? I never heard of it. Yeah, I hadn't either. I'm going to read that article. That looks good. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, and uh, we appreciate you getting in touch with us. And if you want to get in touch with us, please do. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.